Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is an international award-winning economist, Forbes contributor, and founder of the leading speakers bureau in the Middle East. She is a keynote speaker, a graduate of the esteemed Stockholm School of Economics. She was recognized as a female economist of the year in 2010 and named one of the top 10 most influential leaders of 2020 by Insight Success. With a boundless amount of energy, creativity, and determination, she shares her experience about being bold and all in. We're excited to welcome the founder and chief inspiration officer of MENA Speakers, Sana Azam. Sana, welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. So good to have you with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. You lead. Speakers Bureau in the Middle East, you are an economist by background, you've been recognized, you were a top female economist in 2010, so really a very eclectic and interesting background, so uh, I know you've got all kinds of great things to share and lessons to teach. Tell us a little bit about you, I mean, just even going back, who were some of the formative people in your early years, or what were some of the things that kind of led you to who you are today? Thank you for that introduction. Yes, you're right. It's been a bit of a varied background, but also still kind of on the same theme. I played basketball. My basketball coach when I was younger was great for me. Anybody in sports have been incredible in shaping my discipline, my sense of friendly competitiveness, and really about pushing the limits and being comfortable with that which also led me to go for the trials for the boys' basketball team in college, the boys. <laughs> yeah. And this was at the United World College in Wales. That was really interesting. It was something that I did quite naively thinking, I just wanted to play sports with the team that was really good. And it happened to be the guys team that was better than the women's team at that time. Signed up for the trials. I show up on the day and they all look at me and they're like, what are you doing here? Like, why I want to play ball. <laughs> and so they're like, no, no, but this is for guys only. And I'm like, okay, well, I just want to try my luck. And if I'm good enough, just accept me. If not, then that's fine. And they kind of insisted on me not fitting in. They're like, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. And I stood my ground and I said, let's just have some fun. Let's try this out. So I did. Then a few days later at the assembly, when they're announcing who the shortlisted teams were, I had a feeling that I was going to make it. So that day I intentionally wore a tie to the assembly with the school because I knew, you know, I was going to make the cut. And they announced my name last and the whole assembly started clapping because it was quite a revolutionary moment for the school to have a female on the boys basketball team. And so that was really, really a great moment that I'm grateful for the coaches that were part of that experience. And then the subsequent year I became captain. It's a pretty incredible story. It must have taken a certain amount of courage and confidence and so forth. Have you always been that way or where did you find that in yourself? I was drawn to it. The initial part of signing up, I thought was just a fun thing to do. What really took courage was to persist for two years when you're being physically and psychologically challenged by a few people on the team that didn't necessarily want to have you there. 
to after every game or before every game, go to the girls' locker room when the guys are debriefing and powering in the guys' locker room. It's just all these small things that maybe feel a sense of being left outside. That I think required a lot of resilience. I was very passionate about it. I was really stubborn about proving them wrong. And again, that sense of like friendly competitiveness of wanting to create the glass ceiling and win essentially. So it was fun. <laughs> Today we laugh about it. At that point in time, I didn't laugh about it. I had moments where I was crying on my own, but it was fun and it was really healthy to have gone through that experience. Well, it's pretty incredible that you did that. I would only imagine you inspired after you. Did other women join that team as well? They did not. Not that I know of. I'm not sure they would admit it, but I'm pretty sure the guys were quite inspired about that bold move. (laughs) I'm sure it inspired many. And how did that work out, by the way? Did you get a chance to play? Did the team do well? Oh, yeah, that worked out really well. We won the championship that year. And then the following year, I was chosen captain with another guy for the boys basketball team so things worked out really nicely I would say (laughs) so what happened after that this is in college and where are you from originally that's like a big question do you have time (laughs) I say today I am the sum of all the people that I've met all the places I've traveled to all the books that I have read very much I define myself as a human as a citizen of the world if I would pinpoint geographic locations. My parents are Palestinian. I was born in Germany, raised in Sweden, and lived in six countries afterwards, both where I've worked and been educated. You speak, I believe, five languages, correct? The ones that I speak decently would be uh, Swedish, English, and Arabic. (laughs) And then I get by with French and Spanish. What did you study in school? And because ultimately you went into economics. Was that always an interest to you or how did you go into that field? Not at all. When I went to my college reunion just before my uh, roommate <laughs> and she said, why? Like, I remember that you suffered with maths and economics. How could you win an award in economics? And she was so right. I really suffered with those topics. So I went into economics and I have a master's in economics and that's my degree from university, but it wasn't my natural passion. It was a very kind of optimal decision based on what I wanted in life. And the fact that I hadn't decided what I wanted to do. My sister, she knew she wanted to be a lawyer when she was five years old. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be some form of high flying businesswoman because that sounded cool. (laughs) That's about as much as I knew. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were younger? You know, it's funny you ask. I thought I did. I originally wanted to be a lawyer, and I went straight through and became a lawyer, and then ultimately left the practice of law. So kind of like your sister, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And then once I started to do it, I said, maybe I'll do something else instead. Which is interesting, too, because I think, you know, when you look at what you did, you kind of gravitated into that. And of course, you were very, very successful in economics, but you've since moved on to become that high-flying businesswoman that you aspired to be. Yes, indeed. And it's been very much about going with what I gravitate towards. I knew what I didn't want to do when I did a lot of like internships and I spoke to a lot of people to figure out what I potentially could do. And from there, I could start eliminating things I didn't want to do. So I definitely didn't want to be a doctor. My sister had a clinic and I could go and like intern and just see how that was. Didn't like blood. 
I didn't like to be a lawyer. <laughs> it was just a lot of studying involved. So it kind of went through that process of what didn't I like? And then I had a pool of things that I potentially could do. So I went into banking and physical gold trading, like actually buying and selling in markets and to central banks, their gold reserves, which was incredible. I think a lot of people feel pressure. They feel pressure. You talk to people who are in college or people who are out of college. So it's like, I've got to go from here to here to here. And they want their careers to be a straight line. But it sounds like a little bit for you, even going into gold trading, it was, I don't want to do this. I want to do this. And you ended up there. You're very open-minded to your career kind of unfolding a little bit. It would have been wonderful, just like in the case of my sister, to know that she runs a really successful law firm and all of that. So I'm super proud of her. It would have been great to know that. And I think from a career perspective, the more clarity you have, the better that's going to be. But also in 2022, that's so okay. You can reinvent yourself every two years. And there are these McKinsey reports that talks about Gen Y having a two-year career or three to five-year chapter. And if they don't switch their career or they don't get promoted into new positions, they're not going to stay. That is very okay. And I think that the market in general, and there's a consensus that you are allowed to change your mind and have a change of heart. We don't look at jumpy CVs as jumpy CVs anymore. It's just the norm. That's what's happening in this day and age. I see this a lot where people will look at successful people and they'll see this person went from this to this to this. I need to do the same kind of thing. They have a little bit more of a rigid mindset about their careers. You were an economist and in banking. You ultimately, we'll talk about, I want to hear about your speakers bureau and all that you're doing, <laughs> you're a leading speaker. But what advice would you give for people who are struggling with this as they look at their careers and they look at life and they're nervous or they're afraid for the future? How might you encourage people just to be willing to be open and take a chance on things? What I did was I gravitated towards certain people. So if I'm talking to somebody who's the CEO of, say, Nike, well, that sounded good. And I would ask that person, and it was a him in this case, you know, how does your job look like? And he would describe it. And then, did I like that? Yes, no. And then I went for an internship at Nike as well, did that at university, just see if retail was my thing. And it was fun, could do it. And I also think if you're multidisciplinary and you're kind of, I'm going to say high performer, you're quite comfortable in taking on new challenges. That's also a bit of a problem because you can become quite good at a lot of different things, which I found to be my case in the business world. Like I'm quite good here, quite good there. And what I did is I went all in on everything that I did. So I went in saying, I know I'm an intern today at Nike, but I'm going to become the CEO. And that's the way I treated it. And I just maximized the opportunity to see, you know, is this really what I want to do? <laughs> How do I really feel around this? Can I see myself in the next 50 years doing this day and night? And so kind of could make decisions around that. And again, go from a process of like elimination of not this, but maybe that. So I would say talk to people that you gravitate towards and then go all in when you do get an opportunity, maximize all of it as if you are going to become the CEO. It's amazing advice. And I'm curious, did fear ever play a part in this? Because many times people are afraid, you know, they're afraid to go all in. They're like, well, maybe I'll just do a little bit here and a little bit there. If this doesn't work out, I'll do this instead. You were all in. So how did you overcome or did you just not even have fear? No, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so going all in is scary, but also not having a job is scary. <laughs> so I think you have to kind of choose what scary is 
going to be least painful for you. Let's put it that way. But there's also a tremendous amount of joy in knowing what resonates with your spirit and your soul. What makes you so curious that you want to go and see the details of how they were stitching that garment, of who made that, where does the label come from, who's making this design. If something triggers that type of curiosity, you're onto something that will appeal to you. It's my proxy for what I liked, and in this case, it is public speaking. It's a topic that I love to read about. Body language, communication skills, structures. I actually think these things are super fascinating. How to build relationships and rapport. And so this is where I knew in all of these things that I'm doing, I keep gravitating towards kind of personal development related to communication. Okay, great. <laughs> so I started moving in that direction. And for a myriad of reasons, I set up Mina Speakers, which is an agency in the Middle East that represents speakers. To tell us a little bit more about that, because you're at one place, you're successful in that place, you're doing something very different right now, but you also... You had this passion that sounds like you were continuing to experience kind of what it was that you were excited about. And then you followed it. How you founded Amina Speakers Bureau is a fascinating story for people because I think you went out to find someone to represent you and you didn't find someone, right? So I had moved from Sweden to Dubai, where I'm based, mm -hmm. and worked for this gold company and then got headhunted into a financial services company. I was doing really well. And one of the hypos and the chairman and the board, and they all knew me. And I was you know, in my 20s. So earning well, doing well, and knew that I was on this trajectory that I was excited about. But in the back of my mind, you know, there was also something missing within that job. So I had that. It wasn't 100%. But I was also being invited to speak at different events because I was in finance and economics and my background. So I went, okay, well, that's great. Maybe I can start doing what I did in Sweden, which is to have an agency that represents me and now they can book me for different engagements. So I went online, I Googled and I was looking for different agencies. I found nothing, zero. There wasn't a single one in all of the Middle East that would be interested in representing business speakers or Arab speakers. And I spoke to my agencies that I worked with internationally and there was zero appetite for them to set up in the Middle East. And so... It had me a bit confused and perplexed and maybe a, a dash frustrated because why was there such an underrepresentation from people from this part of the world? When there's clearly a Renaissance movement here, there are a lot of intellectuals that have so much to offer. And so that really did inspire me to set up an agency that represents the unsung heroes or the people from this part of the world that do have a story to share and can inspire other people with. So that's when Mina Speakers was born in 2016. And tell us about it today, because you now have grown to really be the preeminent speakers bureau in the Middle East, correct? Yes, that is correct. Both self-proclaimed and awarded. That's <laughs> so not just my opinion. We've been in business for a couple of years now, and we've grown. We have teams in various countries across both Africa and Asia. So we have colleagues over there that are booking local speakers. So Arab-based or MENA-based speakers, people that live in this part of the world, but also international speakers that want to work in this part of the world. And so we curate engagements, but also provide speakers to conferences and organizations that want education or inspiration. Awesome. And you still speak yourself, and I know that continues to be a passion of yours. How have you developed as a speaker? What are some of the things you've done to become you know, the best version of yourself? So. 
if people pay people to speak, you know, I'm going to be there. <laughs> I didn't know that that was a career in my 20s. But the second I found out, I said, I'm never leaving this because I love this. This is incredible. It is such an amazing journey to be part of that, especially when you start super geeking out on a new topic and you're just reading up and you're researching, and you're talking to experts. That is such an incredible MBA, like express MBA experience, which I love. And I think that's really great for business, for my personal development, but also to share new information with an audience that wants it concisely distilled to them so that they then can action that. I think that's incredibly inspiring and amazing for myself. It motivates me a lot. And some of the things that I've seen kind of in my own evolution as a speaker, first of all, I've just recently stopped being nervous. I've been in the business for 14 years as a speaker. It took me probably 10 years to stop being nervous. First five, I would black out and my knees would be shaking. And I would hear that my voice was breaking every now and then. Others wouldn't necessarily, but then when I hit the 10 year mark and above, then I just, I feel really comfortable on stage. I love it. I really enjoy it. But I still kind of feel um, a sense of performance anxiety. Like you have to do well. You have to have well-researched content. I want to add so much value for my audience. So I just take it very seriously. And ahead of every engagement, I'll spend days just perfecting the delivery of what I'm going to do. And so much of what I hear you saying, though, is that it is about the audience. I mean, you really want to give a gift to that audience. I hear from your heart. That's kind of what's motivating you is really to give that powerful talk. I'm all about that. And everything I do, it's about servant leadership. And so if they're giving me the <laughs> gift of their time and attention, I'm going to be giving them the gift of knowledge or something that will move them, motivate them, inspire them, or potentially transform them. And I don't take that lightly at all. It's a big honor and it's a big privilege to be leading a room filled with people who are there and they want to learn from you. And no, I, I'm very humbled by it. And I take it incredibly seriously. It's interesting, too, hearing you talk about being nervous. I mean, I speak all over the world and I've been speaking for a long time. And still, there's that mm. moment right before you go out. I still feel a little bit nervous, too. The question is, then, what do you do when you get out? You can channel that nervous energy into something positive to give to the audience. Then it's really powerful. I like that, though, right? So it's a testament that this is important to you. The one thing I don't want it to ever feel like, and the day it does, is probably the day I'll stop doing it, is when I'm like on the sofa and, and taking it easy, watching Netflix. If I have that feeling before going up on stage, then I know that my hormones and my body isn't saying, Sana, this is important for you. Now you need to enter peak performance mode. Well, it's a sign certainly that you care. So I think about Dale Carnegie, one of the things he talked about is people really being their authentic selves. You know, So of course, when we put ourselves out there, there's a little bit of that. But the fact that you are a major speaker, that you have a speaker's bureau, and that you still might even have a little bit of nervousness, I think is a good sign for anyone who's listening to our podcast who might say, gosh, you know, why do I get so nervous? It's like, that's a natural part of caring. It's a natural part of mm. speaking. It just, we can't let that hold us back. We've got to channel that into something. And clearly, that's what you've done. You're entering peak performance mode. It's not natural to be standing and talking to 100 people or 1,000 people or 50. It's just not something we do every day. So when the hormones kick in and you're feeling that, I get really excited. I go, oh, yes, so we're entering peak performance mode. That means I'm on high alert. All my senses are heightened. I can now lead the room and be in control of what is happening. 
because my hearing is heightened, my sight is improved. These are all good signs, but it does come with what feels is either excitement or nervousness. And so you can actually use it. It's the same set of hormones for both. And you want that type of adrenaline kick, that type of testosterone when you're peak performing. So we say, thank you, body. Thank you, feelings. Let's rock and roll. That's right. That's right. Let's bring it, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I know you wrote a blog about your three favorite books on communication. And I mean, this is completely unrelated to our podcast. (laughs) I I was excited to see that the number one book that you picked, your favorite book on communication was How to Win Friends and Influence People. Tell us about that selection. You have no idea how many times I've been up on stage and said, please, if you take nothing away from this speech, just go and buy this book. Can you imagine? (laughs) So I've said that so many times. It was one of these first books that I ever came across when I was a teenager, it was Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and this book by Dale Carnegie. When I was like 13, 14, this was way before I even understood what personal development was. But I remember reading it and going, oh my gosh, this is so powerful. And this is so interesting and it really resonates with me. And so I don't know how many more times I've gone back, just look up things and refer back to them. I really like this in order to be interesting, be interested type of expressions from both of these books. So yeah, thank you for (laughs) noticing that. (laughs) I like to do my research before an interview and certainly I was delighted to see that. Personally, it's one of the most important books I've ever read and it's all about human relationship and interaction, which even as a speaker, you and I spoke prior to this uh, interview about trying to have connection with the audience. We're trying to have a positive impact. And part of that is how do we engage them? So where do you see your business today? And what are you looking forward to in the next several years ahead? I'm really excited to (laughs) bring innovation to our sector. We're working with a lot of interesting different partners to do that, incorporating even more technology to the speaking segment. Those are some of my high level thoughts expanding the team, expanding the business. We already have a team present in four countries at the moment, but definitely looking to have more people participate and kind of help us spread the message of positive messages to the world. Awesome. That's terrific. Talk a little bit about, I mean, there's a whole entrepreneurial side of this. So, you know, you were working for companies, working in the banking industry, then you created your own business. Now you're running a business. What are some of the skills that you really had to lean on heavily as you, I mean, you started this from nothing. You've started hired people, you built teams. What are some of the things that have enabled you to do that so successfully? I think the the transition from corporate to founder slash CEO, because those are two different roles, which I've somehow signed up for for the past couple of years as one. It's been a really interesting uh, transition. I had a couple of years within the corporate world and then moving into running my own, it really exposed me to all of my strengths and all of my vulnerabilities, especially when you're running your own business and you're in the beginning a solopreneur, you're just on your own. You learn very quickly of what you need to upscale, what you need to outsource and what you really need to go and read up on. Because you're not just the CEO, but you're also the coffee girl and the accountant and the marketing and the sales and and all of that. And I was also quite surprised at how, if you look at from the perspective of recruitment, you know, working with somebody who is a 
founder and CEO, it's one of the challenges that I have with people is how do I bring out that level of passion that I have for my job, which is basically all of my existence is what I live and breathe into people that I'm working with and to make sure that I'm not putting too much pressure on them the way I would on myself to achieve this level of excellence that I'm always kind of striving towards. And that's really different from being in a corporate environment where people can check out for the weekend. I would say those are things that I constantly reflect over. How do I keep people motivated? How do I make sure that we have this excellence level? How do I make sure that I recruit the right people in an environment where individuals stay for a couple of years? They don't even see their full career at a job. And also make sure that that doesn't demoralize me and my leadership. Because it is quite demoralizing. In the beginning, I didn't understand that this, you know, we live in a new day and age where people are not planning on staying at a job forever. So in the beginning, I thought it was my fault and that I had failed. And so I was beating myself up about it quite a lot in my leadership. But then today, a few years later, I understand that we live in a day and age where individuals don't see their full careers forever with one company. And I need to be at peace with that and just give them incredible two years or so where they're feeling happy, motivated, and inspired, but then can move on to the next job and grow within that next job and be okay with it. And from both sides, so that the business is able to onboard new people quickly. And I think that's the biggest challenge really ahead for any business leader in this day and age. So I want to ask you about what you've learned about how to inspire people, but I think you're touching on something that's really important for anyone who's in business, which is there's been the saying that, you know, people don't leave jobs, they leave managers, but that's not necessarily true. People now today leave jobs because maybe they aspire for something completely different. They may love and enjoy a job. And then just maybe their vision now for themselves is different than it was when they started that job. Maybe they've grown to a level and it's easy to take that personally. You may have been a phenomenal leader and it's time for them to move on for themselves. So Dubai is mostly expats. A majority of people, about 90% that live here are not from the country. We're from different nationalities. And you have a lot of individuals that come here for a short stint to earn money and then go back or to have a career change and then move. So you had all these different factors and with this globalization movement at play and the fact that I was hiring a lot of young people as well, <laughs> and they were definitely not signing up for the long game. So I had all these different elements. And now what I've done is I've set up the business so that you can have individuals that join quickly, can grasp their tasks quickly, create playbooks and kind of manuals and things that quickly get them up to speed so that they can make the most out of the opportunity. The business is also making the most out of their time there. We have fun for a period of time and we're very open and transparent about the fact that I don't think you're gonna be here for the rest of your career. So I want you to become the best, most skilled professional that you could be in this period of time that you're here with us. And I will support you in your next job and make sure that that exit is very positive and it's very kind of warm and that we stay in touch. And I've had people come and, go basically like they worked for me for a while and then left I think that mindset is definitely something that we need to embrace in this new kind of gig economy and this new workforce that is here the gen y gen z's the gen whatever they're very much not looking for the forever job they're looking for right now so Sana, what are some things you've learned about how to inspire people and especially recognizing that people might only be there for a period of time how do you inspire them to give their best we're agile 
you know, I would have a job description in mind, but I would also see and work with the person that I'm with. If I know that they don't like building PowerPoints or they prefer meeting people in person, what I do is I start restructuring the team so that everyone's working with their strengths. And then if they show an interest to improve, so they're kind of leading the way, I'm working around that. And we will have a very honest and direct feedback of, you're not very good at this. Are you sure you wanna learn? Yes, okay, great, I'm, I'll support you with that. You're very good at this. Do you wanna double down on that instead? Yes, great, let's do that. So it's a lot of that happening. It's very much about working with what people enjoy and gravitate towards and then amplifying that. Yeah, I think people appreciate that. They appreciate just the latitude to be able to try different things and also kind of the guidance, you know, if something's not working. Let me switch over to something a little bit different, which is just the topic of leadership. How mm. do you define leadership? What does leadership mean to you? If you were to define it in a sentence or two, what's leadership mean to you, Sana? In my model of the world, it's servant leadership. It's situational leadership. What I have learned is that different people need very different things. In a multicultural environment, it could even go against what I think is the norm. So having come from, you know, a career in the West, out in London and Sweden, then coming to the Middle East, and I'm dealing with all these different nationalities, there are certain nationalities or individuals that prefer that I take on a very high-powered, high-hierarchical role that is very assertive. I tell them exactly what they need to do, and they feel safe. And then you have some individuals that want me to completely just take a step back, and they will come to me when they need my help, and they thrive in that. And then you have a whole range in the middle. Let me ask, since you brought up female leadership, I don't know if I mentioned this. I've got six children, the first four of whom are girls. And I have always always (laughs) aspired since they were young to be strong, confident young women. And uh, my oldest, she's 23. She's in her first job and she's always asking about leadership. And you know, one of the things I would say, what advice do you have really for anyone in leadership, but in particular to young female leaders? When we learn leadership from a theoretical perspective, which is a discussion on its own, because I find it so entertaining when people who've never been in a leadership position are writing and telling us how to lead. Sometimes I read books and I go, okay, maybe in your model of the world, in theory, this works, but in reality, this will never work. I would say, be ready to embrace all of the techniques necessary and some which you might not even be comfortable with, but that's what the situation requires. In my case, it was about coming from Sweden where it's flat, zero hierarchy. Everyone is on a first name basis. It's very friendly. It's consensus driven. For me to go in and say, do this, exclamation mark, that was weird to me in the beginning. That was quite uncomfortable. For me to be very concise in my communication, you cannot. You're not allowed. This is not permissible. Saying things like that with an exclamation mark afterwards was something I wasn't comfortable with. Using micromanagement as a technique, some situations require that. Being comfortable in things that you might not think are potentially frowned upon in theory. So I would say be open to whatever the situation requires and definitely get ready to be uncomfortable. (laughs) Well, terrific advice. Uncomfortableness is... 
such an important part of our growth. We know that. It's beautiful. Speaking of which, uncomfortableness, stress. I know stress is something that people really struggle with. I know you are very strong in terms of your commitment to saying, hey, I'm going to make sure mental health is an important thing. Wellness is an important thing. What advice do you have for people to make sure that they are taking care of themselves, doing the right things for themselves mentally, emotionally? And what are some things that you do? So when you show up feeling whole, feeling complete and in a sense of feeling very healthy, physically, psychologically, mentally, just in every possible way, you are going to inevitably be a better parent, better friend, better leader, better colleague. And so this is something that I take very seriously. And I can't wait for the day where we normalize, I'm going to a therapist. And we say that as casually as I'm going to my personal trainer, I'm going to the gym. Because that is so, so important. I do a lot. (laughs) I have a lot of people around me that keep me aligned. And that is everywhere from the range of a personal trainer, a therapist, a psychic, an energy reader, yoga instructor. And then I have all these workbooks. Right now in front of me, I have a 500-piece puzzle. That just gives me a lot of serenity. I do meditate, I do journal, I do read books about mental health. So I do a lot to stay calibrated, aligned, feeling good, because I think that's really important for all of my stakeholders, for the people that we are supporting. If I feel good, then I can do a lot more for a lot more people. You can't really be there for them if you're not whole yourself. And one of the things I take away from what you just said is you're very intentional about making time for yourself whether it's getting advice from other people or getting help from other people or making time for it, but we have to make time for ourselves because otherwise it just seems like the world is so busy and work is so busy. We can get consumed with everything and get burned out pretty easily. Oh, we can. And the road to recovery from burnout isn't easy. This is not where I want to be. I want to be in a place where I'm feeling content with what I'm doing and how I'm showing up and I'm enjoying. Is that bar too high in a place where you have a business, two businesses actually, a young child that's two and a half years old and you're just trying to stay sane. Yeah, some days it is. Some days it's really tough, but I do a lot to make sure that it becomes very manageable and that I'm completely at peace with my existence and in harmony with my environment. It's one day and one moment at a time. That's all we can do, right? Try to be in the present moment and just balance things the best we can. What do you do for your zenness? Yeah, well, you know, I... Start my day the same way every day. And that is, you know, I wake up, I get a cup of green tea and I go and I spend the first 45 minutes meditation. It's prayer. It's focus. I'm thinking about, all right, what went well yesterday? What did not go well yesterday? What do I need to focus on today? What do I need to fix from yesterday? There are times that I think about something I said, something happens overnight where I might wake up and say, gosh, I should have said that yesterday. I take that morning space as a time for this kind of getting focused. You and I were talking about, so I like to run. I think exercise is an important part of it. There's no replacement for just that physical outlet, you know, whether it's lifting, running or doing something. So walking, not always easy to make time for it, is it? I'm just always impressed by people that are so disciplined that they can always have a morning routine. It takes a lot of discipline to be able to do that. I admire it. And I know you're a runner, marathon runner. I admire that too. I think that's fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) I think that the morning routine for me is almost defensive, if you will. And what I mean is I'm best in the morning 
I've got a friend who's not good in the morning at all. So the idea of a morning routine doesn't work for him. It's more like an evening routine. Some people are just later people. So we find what's best for us and what works for us. Journaling is an important part of it. Is that something you do also? I have these workbooks. They're already set questions that I fill in. So I do that. And I have these apps that ask me different journaling questions, catalytic questions that make you think. I don't do the journaling. This is what I did today, or these are my top three gratitude. Nothing consistent like that. But I have different things where I write down my thoughts. Almost has to be driven from an external stimulus. Like, oh, there's a prompt. Don't forget to journal. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) That's what it is. Awesome. Any apps you recommend for our listeners? So I'm quite fond of Happify. I'm quite fond of BetterHelp, which is online therapy, and they have this journaling. So you journal from there as well. Those are the two top ones I'm looking at my app right now that I think are really, really good that I've kind of consistently been going back to. Awesome. Well, thanks for the tip. I'm always looking for good apps as well. Well, it's not a terrific discussion. What parting piece of advice might you have for our listeners today? I would say, You only live one life. And so do it in a way that makes you proud, makes you content. When you're 90, there's an Italian philosophy. When you're 90, I'd rather see that you repent instead of regret. Follow your heart. Do take the risk. Live a little bit on the edge every now and then. Live boldly and live courageously. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much. And really appreciate being with you today. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.